Even if you're not a regular Bible reader, everyone knows about David and Goliath stories. You know, the underdog who makes good and achieves an improbable victory. Well, that's where we are this morning. As we get into it, there's a real, there was an ancient reality called champion warfare, and that's what we find in chapter 17 here. Goliath introduces the idea to say, let's do this one-on-one, mano-a-mano, winner-takes-all. But with these two champions, they come down into the Valley of Elah, it's more about just the two men. It's about their nations, their people, and it's also about their gods. They were representatives of their people and their deities. This is a story this morning about glory. You may have seen the 2004 movie, Troy. Yes? I don't usually quote Brad Pitt in my sermon introduction, (laughs) but this morning I will. Brad Pitt played the role of Achilles, representing the Greeks as they were attacking the city of Troy. And he was fighting Hector. Hector had just killed Achilles' best friend. As they're fighting one-on-one and the people of Troy are watching over the walls, to see who would win, Hector trips on a stone. Instead of pressing his advantage, Achilles stops. And he says, get up, prince of Troy. Get up! I will not let a stone take my glory. As we move into chapter 17 here, this David and Goliath story is a story of glory, of fame, renown, freedom, victory, worship. Who will rule? In Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord says something about his own glory. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. We know that man is made for the glory of God. We are intended as humans in the Imago Dei to reflect the image of God, to reflect his glory, to have God-centered lives. Whatever we do, Paul instructs the Corinthians, do it all for the glory of God. That may sound a bit narcissistic. If I went around to my family and said, all that you do, do for my glory, that would be narcissistic. But I'm not God. We don't begrudge the sun of its glory. We don't begrudge the sun being in the center of our solar system, around which everything revolves and feels its warmth. Instead, we long, especially in Chicago, for its rays to fall on us. We rejoice in days like today. Similarly, we don't begrudge God his glory. He is the one who spoke the Son. He is the eternal glorious one. Life has no meaning apart from him, 
and humans, all of creation, finds its fulfillment in him. We are made by him, through him, and for him. Therefore, it is a gracious gift to humanity that God has told us, your purpose is to live for my glory, and that I'm not going to share it with anybody else. This is where our eyes should be set upon him and him alone. Well, this morning, as we get into this story of glory, we'll see the glory of God in the most glorious of places, a place that most of us have never been, the battlefield. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide us on the battlefield today. Speak to us from your word. Let your Holy Spirit exalt Jesus among us. Thank you that you are with us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So where are we so far after Esteban read the first 27 verses? Well, in verses 1 through 11, we have this dreadful enemy on one side of the Valley of Elah, and on the other, a king and an army full of dread. The Philistines, we've got Goliath! And Israel saying, we thought we had Saul. Goliath, as short as seven feet, perhaps as tall as nine feet, it's debatable. Yet impressive height and extremely impressive armor. In verse 8, when he comes out, he says, am I not a Philistine? Literally, he's saying, am I not pops his collar, the Philistine. Am I not the ultimate Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul, a.k.a. the Israelite? Where is he? Again, this is champion warfare, winner takes all. Goliath has stepped to the fore, but where is Israel's champion? We find in verses 12 through 8 that David is an anointed errand boy. We talk more about the reality that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God has come and rushed upon David and remained for the rest of his life. And so he's this anointed errand boy caring for his sheep back in Bethlehem. But then his father Jesse would say, and I need you to take some stuff to your brothers who are on the front lines of the battle. Meanwhile, Goliath has come forward for 40 days and continually mocked Israel. Verses 19 through 27, David enters the camp. And we find him being a shocked observer. He runs to the valley of Elah and he sees the army descend from the heights into the valley and draw up for battle. Goliath spoke the same as before, and now David hears him. Israel's response, they turn tail and flee. And then David hears the people, after they have fled, oddly enough, speak of Saul's offer, his motivation that they should go out and kill this giant. The only thing is, 
this motivational offer has not inspired anyone. Great riches, marry Saul's daughter, attain freedom for his father's house, maybe freedom from taxation. It's not inspiring anyone to go out and take on Goliath. David asks them to repeat the offer, maybe scratching his head, as he considers the defiance of this, in his words, uncircumcised Philistine. How could he be defying the armies of the Lord? Now, you may remember another giant story. Another giant story that happened after Egypt. In Numbers 13, starting in verse 27, Israel has been rescued from Egypt out of their slavery. And they wander through the wilderness for a little while and then come to the Jordan River where they now are to cross over the river and go into the promised land. And you'll remember that 12 spies are appointed to cross over and search out the land. And they do, going to and fro across Canaan. And they come back with a report. They speak to Moses and all to the people. They say, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was a giant. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. A little bit later in Numbers 14, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 
So Caleb and Joshua had survived the small time. They had survived spying out the land. And they come back, and now they're more disheartened than ever. Because of the 12 spies, they're the only two that said, the Lord may be with us. We must go into the land. Well, God hears the bad report. He hears the complaint of the Israel. He hears their lack of faith. And he says, turn around. You're going to wander through that wilderness now for 40 years until everyone who is of this generation is dead and buried in the sand. Except for two. Joshua and Caleb. Fast forward 40 years, actually 45 years, to Joshua, chapter 14. Verses 6 through 12. They have now crossed over the Jordan. They are in the land. And Caleb comes up to Joshua. He says this. Joshua now having become Moses' heir apparent. He was his heir to leadership. Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill of country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Next chapter, Joshua 15, 14, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, these giants, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Caleb, the Lord may be with me. He may give these giants into my hand, even as an 85-year-old. Now, as we've been going through Ruth and 1 Samuel, you've probably heard Bethlehem referred to as Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Or talking about the clan of the Ephrathites. The clan of the Ephrathites was Caleb's family. So now, in 1 Samuel 17... 
we have a descendant of Caleb. And he sees a fearful king failing his people for 40 days. And I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit remembers. Great, great, great grandpa Caleb wandered through the desert for 40 years. And then he took out those giants. This king, Saul, was gripped by fear that was greater than his faith. Yet David knew that giant slaying was in his heart, in his family line, because the Lord was with him. So we come to 1 Samuel 17, to this story of glory. And remember that in 1 Samuel, that has so many layers... It's also this book of extended glory as the glory of God was revealed to Samuel. The glory of God left when the Philistines allowed when the Philistines captured the ark. Phineas, the corrupt son of Eli the priest, dies and his wife gives birth as he's dying as she hears about his death and names him Ichabod meaning the glory has left. God himself brought back the ark. And he brought it back after the Philistines, actually having been overrun by tumors and by mice, with their god Dagon falling flat on his face and his head and hands breaking off. The leaders of the Philistines said, we must give glory to the God of Israel. And the ark comes back. Saul, the Holy Spirit, rushes on him but does not remain with him because Saul gloried in himself. He presumed upon the Lord. He lied. He regretted as a man regrets but showed no true repentance. He did not act as a king who had the glory of Israel. Now the glory of God is in David. He's anointed. The Holy Spirit dwells in his heart. How will that glory be displayed? On the battlefield. Now, here's the thing. Very few of us have been on a battlefield. Maybe you play Risk or Stratego. But that might be about it. We do have an army major here this morning. We have some others among us who are armed service veterans. But most of us have not been in a place where it's either him or me. Where the objective is victory through mortality. To be honest, if any of us were put in that position where we could choose, we would choose not to be. We are not Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, where my thirst for revenge and for honor is so great that I'll put my life on the line to see that other dude dead. 
That's not the way we typically think. We are self-preservationists. But there's a reason why those who fought in World War II are glorified as the greatest generation. Why such glory? Because of the possibility of death. When it comes down to it, the greater the likelihood of death, the greater the opportunity for glory. That's at play here. But two factors also play into the death and glory equation. Fear and faith. If you're looking for a main idea this morning, here it is. The fear of faith vanquishes glory. I'm sorry, the fear of death vanquishes glory. But faith in the living God victoriously glorifies. The fear of death vanquishes glory, but faith in the living God victoriously glorifies. Let's talk about fear and faith for a minute. Fear originated in the garden. Adam and Eve fell. They sinned. And what did they immediately do? They hid. Closely following their hiding is the curse of death. At its root, fear, specifically the fear of death, is a distrust of God. It assumes omniscience that we don't have. I know how this is going to turn out. I can see where the breadcrumbs are leading, and it's not good. It's fed by our senses, especially what we see and what we hear. Fear seeks self-preservation, which is a type of self-glorification, self-exaltation. As we continue on through this, this journal of royal reign in 1 Samuel, as we've been talking about, self-preservation and fear is an element of I am my own king. I am my own queen. If I'm trying to preserve my kingdom, and I'm the reigning ruler of my own kingdom, guess what? I'm going to do everything I can to preserve my own life. Otherwise, no king or queen, no personal kingdom. We'll see it here. Those who have opportunities for God's glory, but instead they bow to fear. We'll see Eliab the oldest brother, the tallest of them all. When David kind of infers that he might be ready to go in battle, Eliab gets angry. His fear erupts in anger, defensiveness. Why? Because inside he's like, that should be me. I should be the one stepping up for the name of my family and for the name of my God. But he's a coward. We'll also see a tall king, Saul, the tallest of any Israelite. And Saul seeks false glory. He offers David his armor, 
perhaps to make it seem like it is Saul himself down fighting as the champion. Remember, he had already claimed Jonathan's victory over the Philistine garrison. If he was cool with taking credit for his son's bravery, he'd be cool with taking credit for defeating Goliath. Whereas fear originated in the garden and we see its tentacles throughout the rest of humanity, faith originated in the Trinity. Belief in what is true and real. Sometimes we think about blind faith. Faith is not blind. True faith has a true object. And within the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from eternity past, have fully trusted one another. Have fully understood them as the defining reality of all reality. At its root, faith in the living God is trusting God, believing who he, that he is who he has said he is. It assumes his omniscience, not ours. The breadcrumbs might be leading that way, but he governs my life. He knows how this is going to turn out. Faith defines who the children of God are. Paul says in Galatians 3, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, heirs according to the promise. Here's the thing. Faith is also, can also be fed by our senses, what we have heard, what we have seen. Faith remembers and believes because true faith in the living God knows that its object is glory worthy eternally. The greatness of God draws the reborn heart to see him and him alone. To worship him and him alone. Whereas fear seeks self-preservation, faith seeks God glorification, which is a type of self-humiliation. He is my king. We'll see this in this story also. Those who have opportunities to fear death, but instead faithfully bow and act for the sake of their king, the living God. We'll see David, the small servant, with valiant faith. Remember, the fear of death vanquishes glory, but faith in the living God victoriously glorifies. Let's go to the text. Chapter 17, verse 28. I'm going to read it straight through until verse 54. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. 
for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Family dynamics. Was it not but a word? And David turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a great shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The fear of death vanquishes glory. But faith in the living God victoriously glorifies because the battle is the Lord's and all glory belongs to him. Three ways that I want you to see that the battle is the Lord's. First of all, because I take that not just to mean the battle is the Lord's, like the victory is the Lord's, but the actual battle is the Lord's. The situation, the context, the details are providentially arranged by him for his glory. So here you have young David, full of the Holy Spirit, who knew that, other than Samuel, we're not exactly sure. But he's still at home tending sheep. He has not heard the boasts of Goliath himself until he shows up because he's running this errand. He meets his fearful brother, who's just one of many fearful Israelites. He meets Saul, the fearful king, and he hears the dreadful giant. Okay, we're familiar with those details of this story. But consider this. David had no sword. There's the issue of his armor and what he had to use. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 13... Verse 19, listen to this. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. At that time, other than Jonathan and Saul, as we see a few verses later, there were no other Weapons for Israel to use. Now, Jonathan and his armor bearer then defeat the Philistine garrison. Saul then defeats the Amalekites and the Philistines as well. And so we can assume that in the plunder of those battles, swords, perhaps spears, came into the hands of the Israelites. So you have a fearful people who 
have been under the dominion of the Philistines. Now the Philistines are in Judah. They are in the promised land. And they're saying, we used to be at a place where their boot was on our neck to such an extent that we couldn't even have weapons. And now, perhaps they have gained weapons and now face the Philistines again and they're just as fearful as they were then. Even with weapons. Even with their king, like the nations have a king. I believe this is another reason that David refused the armor. God, in his providence, has ramped up the possibility and even the probability of death for David. Because of the armor issue, the weapon issue. But here's the thing. David doesn't want it. David doesn't want it. In fact, he sheds Saul's armor and then he boasts of his weakness in contrast to Goliath's armor. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the, name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Hear this. Living in faith does not mean that fear is eradicated. I'm speaking to us. It does not mean when you have faith in the living God that all of a sudden all your fears are gone or the things that can cause you to fear, to be afraid, to be anxious. Does not mean that those situations are automatically fixed. In fact, the faithful servants of the living God may have more to fear and may have fewer resources than their neighbors. May not be able to actually say, I can fight my way out of this, if you will. I can calm my fears by what I've got or the strength of my personality or my education my wealth. But the faithful servant of the living God has the only resource needed. God himself. And these battlefield realities, and we're talking more the spiritual battlefield in our lives, give opportunities for great glory as we refuse, in a sense, forsake, in a sense, the resources of the world and say, we come not with our weapons, but in the name of the Lord God of Israel. God himself, that our boasting and our glorifying would be in him and him alone. So the battle is the Lord's here in the Valley of Elah, because he has providentially arranged all of this 
for his glory. The battle is also the Lord's because he saves by a faithful champion. The word champion here literally means a man in the middle. Just in case, people here at Edgewater, you were feeling that you could never measure up to David's faith, in a sense you're right. You and I are not David, and chapter 17 is not telling us to be David. Instead, we are fearful Israel, afraid of death, turn-tailing and running, led astray by our own rule or by the kings that we set over us, small k king. We are assailed by fear of the serpent enemy of our souls. See, Goliath's armor was scaled armor, scales, meant to evoke the image of a serpent. A picture of the servants, the serpent seed going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam fell under the influence of this serpent. But there would be a son of Adam that would crush that serpent's head. After 40 years of wandering, after leaving Egypt, Egypt also described in the Old Testament as Rahab or a servant or a serpent. Jonah, Joshua, goes to the middle of the Jordan and stands in the middle as God's people cross over into the promised land. And now after 40 days of impotent rule by Saul, David would step forward and crush the head of Goliath, the giant serpent. After 40 days of fasting, there would be a son of man who would take that serpent's best shot and do what, David, what Adam did not do, remain faithful to his father. He stepped forward and took the full brunt of Satan's attack. Three years later, Jesus, the Christ, would not fear death, but instead he would faithfully entrust himself to the will of his father and go to the cross, our champion who stood in the middle. His Satan-crushing victory would take the brunt of Satan's worst weapon like David did with Goliath and work it against him, crushing Satan's reign and his rule to death by his own death and glorious resurrection. This is what's called vicarious atonement. That God himself stood in the middle. Jesus, as John described him, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whereas David, in some respect, as a human, as we'll see, receives some glory because of his victory. When Jesus descends, 
the incarnate God-man, he stands in the middle and all glory is given to him, which means all glory is given to God. I am the Lord and I give my glory to no other. Our representative Christ took our death and gave us his life. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 2. See if it pops up here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the people of faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's in the middle atonement, standing in the middle for his people, taking the death that they deserve, and also wiping them clean to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The battle is the Lord's because he providentially details every part of our lives, brothers and sisters. Think of the battle that you are wrestling with right now, particularly the battle of fear, maybe even more precisely, the battle of the fear of death. And you feel like it's worse now than it's ever been. Is that because something slipped? No. It's because God in his grace is amplifying his glory in your life. Giving you the opportunity for greater faith in him. Not a greater faith that says, now I have greater faith, 
but a faith that sees its object of faith, the living God, as more and more gloriously great. So when you feel like you're in the middle of the battle, would you start by saying this? Those circumstances are rough. The battle is the Lord's, including every circumstance, including every thought, including even the attacks of the devil. As Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. There's nothing he cannot do without the express permission of the sovereign God of the universe. The battle is the Lord's and the details are providentially arranged by him in your life for his glory. But you don't have to be David because he has saved you by a faithful champion, the man in the middle who accomplishes what? Not just vicarious atonement, but vicarious victory. He is the champion and all those who are in him share his win. He makes new brothers and sisters who, are, who were full of the fear of death into his family, his siblings who are full of faith in him. As one of my favorite current artists, John Van Dusen, sings, he's calling all cowards to his side. Rise up and rally to his side. He is alive. What did David tell Goliath the purpose of this whole thing was? Verse 46. So that when I strike you down and cut off your head and give the bodies of your army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, why would I do this? Why will God do this? That all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. That the glory of the Lord would spread throughout the earth like the waters cover the sea. God is doing it. Will we join him in it? Jesus has done it. Will we join him in it? Or will we continue to moan about our circumstances, make our own self-rule decisions, try to reanimate our lives with new experiences of love or joy that aren't actually in Christ? That God's glory would be seen in all the earth is the first reason. But did you see the second reason? Verse 47. That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Not with sword and spear. Instead he saved with a cross and an empty tomb. That word assembly there in the Greek version of the Old Testament is ekklesia. The same word as the church. Listen, brothers and sisters. Your situations are 
real. The battle is real, but the battle is the Lord's. And so we run forward in the victory of Christ, knowing that there is no fear of death for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And saying, this, even if this takes me out and I die, I'm not really dead. Because I will live for life eternal. And the church of God gets to glory in our Redeemer as we see his glory abound because our faith is in him and him alone. So when you say the battle is the Lord's, say it because you believe it. Say it because you're faithfully trusting that it is. And then ask him boldly. A couple of things that I'll just encourage us with to finish. By God's grace, he has made us his church. And he has given us the opportunity in Christ to move forward in victory and not fear. I would ask you two things specifically. Number one is this. Pray for your elders. I'm asking you to pray for Joey and his family. I'm asking you to pray for Jake and his family. And I'm asking you to pray for David and his family. Dave is not yet an elder. Lord willing, he may be in March. Jake is not yet associate pastor. Lord willing, he may be in March. Pray for me and for my family. The battle is thick. But we have a glorious Savior. Pray for our church as we look towards that meeting in March 19th. That God would unite us in decisive, victorious, spirit-led decision. And second of all, I would ask you this. Pray. Not just for the elders and their family. Pray for us. Pray that the glory of God would fall upon us. You've probably seen quite a few articles about revivals lately. But let me just point you to something in 1857. In New York City, a man named Jeremiah Lampfear, a businessman there, decided to start meeting with a group of businessmen, a very small group. They began to pray that God would revive their city. They began to meet every noontime for prayer. And the way that Jeremiah described it, he said, instead of taking a rest, the businessmen of New York are giving themselves no rest, and they're giving their God no rest. David charged forward. Our Christ charges forward. Will we join him? Will we say, God, we will give you no rest. We will ask boldly. We will pray, pray, pray that your glory would fill us as your church, as your people, that faith would abound. Fear of death vanquishes glory, but faith in the living God victoriously glorifies because the battle is the Lord's 
and all glory belongs to